Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Greetings, friends. I'm Mariquita Guerrera, and I am bad at reading nonfiction books, by which I mean they interest me, and I really want to read them, and I do enjoy reading them, but they take me forever to get through because I don't get swept up in the story the way I do with novels. But I recently read a really fantastic nonfiction book, and I knew right away I was going to want to recommend it to everyone, even people who are bad at nonfiction like me. The book is Bravehearted, The Women of the American West by Katie Hickman, published October 25th by Spiegel and Grau. It is an accounting of just over four decades of the colonization of the American West from 1836 through 1880. I was drawn to this book because of a little family history. My maternal grandfather, like all grandfathers, I think, was really into genealogy and found out we were related to James Butler Hickok, also known as Wild Bill. So I heard a fair amount about the Western frontier growing up. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me try that again. So I heard a fair amount about the Western frontier growing up, but all I knew about it was through the lens of renegade wild men and sepia-toned nostalgia. I'm no student of history, but I know that's not the whole story. I know it's not even half the story. I wanted more. In Bravehearted, Hickman expertly utilizes the journals and correspondence, as well as testimony, of women contemporary to the mid to late 19th century, and unlike many other historical pieces capturing the whirlwind romance and destruction of manifest destiny and westward expansion, she does not exclude the voices and experiences of Native women. Some of the most moving passages in the book, some of the most heartbreaking and violent, optimistic and yearning, come from the inclusion of these stories. These are the stories, the voices, that I have been missing, and Hickman stitches together their words in a way that propels you onward and cracks open your heart. Bravehearted opens with the story of Narcissa Whitman and the Whitman Spalding Expedition from New York to Oregon in 1836. The journey at the time was perilous and largely unknown, not undertaken by many and motivated in Whitman's case by a desire to spread Christianity to the native populations. Their disastrous end, the Whitman Massacre, many years later, was used as a catalyst and a justification for further and profoundly horrific violence against Native people. It was at this point in the book, about halfway through, where I did honestly have to put it down. Big, big content warning here um, around violence. My heart broke at one of the only survivor testimonies of a murderous raid to be made available, and I needed to catch my breath. Hickman also explores the well-known Donna Reed party tragedy, the lesser-known but still often-covered abduction of Olive Oatman, lightly touches on the Pony Express and gives considerable page count to the booming foundations of San Francisco, including the enslavement of Chinese women, many of whom had been deceived and forced into sex work. But she also gives life to lesser-known stories, including that of Biddy Mason, among one of the first Black women to make the journey west. 
By the time of her death, Hickman writes, Mason was, quote, one of the most prominent and respected citizens in Los Angeles and a substantial property owner and philanthropist. Biddy's story is a phenomenal one and one that I wish was more often discussed. I would love a biopic if anyone is taking requests. Hickman closes Bravehearted by outlining the very effectively devised strategy to dismantle, murder, and all but eliminate the Native populations from the ever-expanding American frontier. Having failed to conquer with violence, the American political system turned instead to railroads. Railroads divided tribes. They cut off the paths wildlife used to migrate and increased the population of settler colonizers moving west. But that in itself was not enough. The slaughter of bison from the prairie, even and often by men shooting at them unjustified from rail cars and leaving their bodies behind, proved profoundly devastating. Facing starvation, many tribes were forced into more and more restrictive agreements, shunted under reservations a fraction of the size of the land they used to access and call home. It is closing this way that Hickman provides a subtle but chilling end to her book. See, she started Bravehearted with a map of the United States as it appeared in 1836, with Mexico stretched out and spreading into present-day California, Utah, Colorado, Nevada, and Texas, and Oklahoma, with Oregon country at that time still disputed land between Great Britain and the U.S., occupying the northwestern corner of the continent, and with unorganized territory, or Indian territory, filling the space between Mexico and what is now known as the Upper Midwest, and the the border of the recognized United States. There is, looking at that 1836 map, an awareness of how untouched the majority of the content was by white settlers. There is a feeling of anticipation and, for me, foreboding. But Hickman carries on, then, with the history as I described earlier, interspersing with smaller and more detailed maps, showing the trails of various expeditions, and you forget, maybe, I forgot what the first map really looked like, the vast expanse of a different country. Until she tells of the decimation of the native populations, until she relays that anguish and pain and loss, at which point she ends the book with a map of the United States as it appeared in 1880, just 44 years later. And all that space, Mexico, the Indian Territory is gone, vanished, replaced instead by tidy state borders, cut up and fitted together like a quilt. It's a map any of us could recognize today, and for a moment you are confronted with the full weight of those 44 transformative years and the true cost of it all. I am no student of history but I did not go into this reading ignorant of the violence that undergirds this country, and even still, it stopped me. I'd like to press this book into your hands. I'd like to ask you to give it as a gift to anyone in your life who loves history and wants to know more, or anyone who thinks the narrative of Manifest Destiny that they learned in high school was the unvarnished truth. It is really quite marvelous. It is thoughtful, and even still, it is incomplete. Because there are stories we just don't have access to, and voices that will never be heard no matter how hard we listen. 
Thank you for listening. And if you get the opportunity, please pick up a copy of Bravehearted, The Women of the American West by Katie Hickman. It is a necessary read. I'm Mariquita Guerrera. And if you're looking for me online, you can find me on Instagram at O underscore Murray. Thank you for joining me today. It's been an honor. Hi, my name is Ashley. I am a feminist book club content contributor, and I am joined today with Roseanne Montello. She joins us to talk about her book, Deliberate Cruelty. Roseanne, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. My first question for you is, what is your definition of feminism? It's the ability to, for everybody of various genders to have the same opportunities as everybody else. Nobody should be disqualified because of your gender. They should have the same opportunities, the same abilities, be able to participate in anything they want to. They should have the same opportunities as everybody else. It sounds a little bit naive, but it would be nice if everyone of every gender could simply do as they please without being discriminated upon. Thank you for your definition. What is Deliberate Cruelty about and how did you decide on the title? At its core, I think people think of it as a story about a murder and an an author who was interested in it. Uh, It's more than that. It's about two people who got caught, uh, caught up in each other's lives. It is about claimers. A little bit, it is about gossip. Well, what can happen when gossip takes over one's life and what happens when or he spins a little bit out of control? It can be as big as a gossipy story that gets convoluted and eventually gets a little bit out of touch. Something as simple as a little bit of gossip that just won't stop flowing on itself. The title is a little bit, it comes from a line that Capote and even Tennessee Williams used in one of his plays. Well, you were deliberately cruel. Could be said was Capote cruel on purpose on the swans with his story? Was he cruel on Ian Woodward? One could argue with that and one could say yes. One could say no. Uh, it depends on where you stand uh, and how much you like Capote as well. So Anne Woodward and Truman Capote have interesting and varied familial backgrounds. How did those backgrounds inspire their ambition? I think they wanted a life that was a little bit less than ordinary, which one has to say that there is no fault in a life that's a little bit different than the one that you grew up in. They watched their families struggle with money and every day just trying to come up with a little bit of a buck to live on. They just wanted to be a little bit different. They knew that, or at least they felt that they were different. They felt that they were deserving of something. You know, sometimes you grow up with that feeling that you weren't meant to spend your life in a small town, that you just were meant for something bigger and better. And their mothers certainly felt that way, both of their mothers. And so they took from them that feeling that they also 
were meant to do something much bigger than just live their lives in small towns where they came from. So why not? What better place than New York or Los Angeles? If you have to aim big, aim really, really big. And, uh, you know, New York was big. And Los Angeles was big as well. So you pick up and go. I mean, why not? So glamour and gossip are prominent in the story. How was writing about those details part of Anne Woodward's story? Well, Anne Woodward, she wanted very much to be part of that whole lifestyle. She just wanted to, I wouldn't say copy, but imitate other glamorous women. She didn't realize, I think, the mistakes that she was making along the way. Instead of trying to befriend the women that she wanted to be friends with, by her action, she alienated them, which was, I think, one of her biggest mistakes. And gossip was very much a part of her life. She had affairs with very powerful men. William Woodward Sr. was one of them. And then, you know, when she couldn't have the older men, she decided on the younger guy. I mean, if that's not cause for gossip, I'm not sure what is. In a society like the one that she ended up, she should have known better that secrets don't really stay secret. So... She was going to be spoken about, and even though there were people who had done bigger things and worse things, and, uh, you know, she had a point. She knew that there were women who had done pretty much the same thing. So she realized that people could be hypocritical, but she was aware that she was going to be the butt of many jokes as well. So many people, many of the people in the story have tragic endings, yet lived rich and scandalous lives. Why is that typical? That question stumped me a little bit because I don't want to say that it's typical. It's mm-hmm. tragic. They do have very rich lives, but a tragic ending part, I don't want to say that it's typical. More than typical, I'd say that it was tragic. Mm-hmm. It's like it, it's circular. You know, they lived very poor or sad lives to start with. They go through great lengths to make better lives for themselves. They end up at a certain level that people could only dream about. And then suddenly they lose everything because of some of the actions that they take. And I think one of the reasons that happened is because they're unable to hold on to what they gained. Sometimes they have difficulty with the new lifestyle. They have a hard time holding on. Maybe they feel guilty. Maybe they feel undeserving. Maybe they feel like they don't belong in the new environment. And I'm not sure if it's just part of that, you know, feeling a little bit out of place. and. The tragedy is that they seem a little bit like fish out of water and that the ending comes a little bit abruptly. And why did you want to write about Anne Woodward? I found her through reading Truman Capote. There was a line in one of his letters. He was writing to a friend 
and he spoke about meeting her, having lunch with her new lover. He seemed a little bit amused and surprised that she was there so soon after shooting her husband. And she had already found a new lover, and she didn't seem very upset that people were looking at her. And I thought about this woman and the fact that even he seemed surprised, which seemed unusual because he was never surprised at anything. And so I thought, well, who is this woman who managed to surprise even Truman Capote so much so that he's mentioning her to friends of his? So I looked her up and she seemed very, very interesting. And it was a case that I hadn't really heard about. It made me curious to learn about her and why she was so not really forgotten, but why he was amused and a little bit baffled by why she by what she was doing. And had she really done what people were talking about? And so I wanted to see if I could find something new or if, you know, I was curious about the gossip too. He was gossiping to other friends and I was curious as much as they were. So gossip really works after all these years. I also could have read a book solely on Anne's mother, Ethel. Yes. And just what she was doing at the time with pursuing her education, yet being faltered by her family for pursuing goals that at the time was not timely. And that she should have just been a mother and a wife, but she was pursuing her education and her career and how she ended up not quite achieving what she sought out to, despite how hard she worked for it. She was a feminist herself back then, and she was very much ahead of her time. She had a very rich life and she ended up um, dying very tragically. And I think Anne... She looked at her and said, well, you know what? My mother's dreams never came to fruition. She died very young. There were all of these people who faulted her for wanting that life. It was very different than the one she had been born. I don't want to make the same mistake. I don't want to end up working in a taxi house with the smell of urine coming from the back theater for the rest of my life with these men who tell me what to do. I want to try and see what life has to, what life has for me. And if it doesn't work out, at least I gave it a shot. In some ways it worked out, in many ways it didn't. So why not? So what was your research process and what parallels did you find between those eras and now? My research process was a little bit Unusual because I saw, I sold the proposal in November of 2019. I had done a lot of research already, but the bulk of it happened during the pandemic. And so it prevented me from actually going places. A lot of it happened while I was home, but I had to rely on people like librarians who were working from home. Whereas I usually go to archives and libraries and centers that offer the kind of information that I actually need. But I I worked as a research librarian before, 
So I knew where to look, um, the people I should get in touch with. And it made things easier in that sense. And librarians are always working, even when places are closed. They're always on the front. They're always at their computers. So I knew that even though the locations were physically closed to the public and to researchers, they were still there. People were still there working. So I had to get in touch with them and get in touch with people at police departments. So I received a lot of information through the mail and boxes full of material, which to me is like Christmas mm-hmm. in a previous sort of way, if you want to call it, it's kind of deceased. But, you know, I received that kind of information. And uh, the research was done the old-fashioned way. The parallels that I saw between that kind of an era and now is that a good story never dies. This was what kind of story people really loved to speculate on. And people gossip a lot about what happened. It was a high-profile tale of murder, deceit. People wanted to know if Anne had really killed her husband. If maybe she hadn't done it. If she had done it for money. If she had done it for ambition. If she had other reasons, if she had a lover helped her, or maybe her mother-in-law had helped her. And it is the kind of story that today would have gossiped about it as well. Gossip is up and running. You look at the television and people are just dying for a story, especially a glamorous good story. People love to see people in high position just get into troubles. And there is something about a glamorous woman getting into trouble as someone who has achieved a certain position, just watching her suddenly fail. And I don't know why, but he should just love watching a woman get in trouble. It surprises me because usually it's usually a woman who does that as well. So, you know, when women should stick with one another, sometimes they're the very ones who bring each other down. So I don't know. I didn't have very many friends who supported her. And I'm thinking that would have happened today as well. So why does Truman Capote continue to be immortalized by Hollywood? And I I think you've you've answered a little bit about that, but particularly his friendships and interactions with women. I'm thinking about Babe Paley and even just some connection with Anne Woodward. He was such a character. I mean, he was an interesting sort of man. He was one of the earliest gay icons. He wasn't ashamed of what he was ever. One of the things that he said was in one of his letters in an interview after the story came out that he wrote about and he was demonized for was that he was always very open about his sexuality, about his relationships, about the kind of lifestyle that he led. He was not ashamed of who he was. And I think that always appeals to people that despite the things he did, he was always honest. That appeals to people because 50, 60, 70 years ago, it was unusual. It was not the time when people really revealed themselves. They were not particularly proud of their own sexuality. They were not especially proud to show themselves who they were. And Capote didn't really care. He 
had a gay lover, a gay companion. He was friends with the most famous people. And, you know, see, told her like it is. I mean, if there was something that really didn't strike him as being honest, he told these women what he thought about them. All of them knew that he was writing a book about them. All of them. And for some reason, they didn't believe him. They all knew that they were going to be immortalized in a book. And somehow they played coy when the story came out. And they all, you know, just made believe that they were so sad about it. And even today, everybody seemed to kind of enjoy these relationships because he was such a, such, I think, honest, interesting, endearing, and also kind of a childlike individual. And as we conclude this conversation, what bookstore would you like our audience to buy this book from? It's going to be available in, in most bookstores, but I'm hoping that the smaller, more intimate bookstore, I'm kind of a sucker for those bookstores myself. So, you know, the kind of bookstore that where you go and are able to just sip with a cup of coffee and browse all your favorite titles. I'm a sucker for the small, intimate coffee shop part bookstore environment. Roseanne Montillo, thank you for joining us to talk about your book, Deliberate Cruelty. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. The greatest gift you can give this season is the gift of the bird. Flip em the Bird is a clothing company bringing cleverness, wit, and a dash of curse words to people who need a good laugh. Flip em the Bird is a small business in Minnesota that provides 14-day, no-shit-easy-return policy, quality, earth-conscious products, and gives back through volunteer work and fundraising. After all, swearing is caring. For all your gift-giving needs, go right to flipemthebird.com, where Susie will get your bird flying in two to three days. When you don't have the words, your clothing should say it for you. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature.